Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Today, I have Joaquina M. Reed on the show. Joaquina thrives as an educator, researcher, writer, public speaker, and community advocate. Within all her spheres of influence, she attempts to act right. She challenges herself to advocate for self and others, practice critical compassion, and move through spaces with a transformative transparency. Joaquina is the creator and curator behind the social media platforms The Anti-Blackness Reader Project and Hug Your White Friends. She holds a Master of Art degree in Communication Studies and is a published researcher, conference presenter, and public speaker. Her public advocacy is largely inspired by her academic research relating to social power and race and gender identity constructions. Welcome to the show, Gina. Yay! I'm so glad to finally have you on because... (laughs) You have actually done like the speaking of racism, Instagram platform, you've done lives. And and I think if I remember correctly, you didn't love the language we were using with the uh, speaking of racism takeover. (laughs) (laughs) But I haven't thought of a better one. So you brilliantly facilitated the speaking of racism platform for an entire day which was awesome it was such an awesome experience to have in my bio you so beautifully you know articulated my um my formal education is in communication so I spent a lot of time thinking about like language and the words and what they signify and what those inherent uh and blank messages can be and so take over I was like this sounds like some colonial settler stuff (laughs) right (laughs) and I feel like maybe the day of or the day before I had also been doing some research on something so I was just like neoliberalism is everywhere we just can't (laughs) escape it you know (laughs) I refuse (laughs) that's awesome and I also think what's really powerful too, and there's so many things that are powerful about words, but this is not what this podcast is about today, is they become norms. The things that we are used to seeing. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, yeah. for example, when LOL showed up, right? It was something that we only knew probably in one medium, which is like, oh, people are using this term on social media. But now, Jen, I'm sure you've heard it. If you don't do it, I LOL out loud in conversation. Oh, do you? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Like, I'll okay, be but like, LOL. Uh huh. But see, I was that person who was like, I refuse to use LOL. It is evil. <laughs> well, and, but it, it's so normal now. You get what I'm saying? Like, I know, I know. Show up and we see it enough and we see it enough. We see it enough. And then it just becomes part of our linguistic story, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I do think there's space to say we should be careful about how we name things and how we name experiences, especially when some of those things become normalized, you know? Yeah. Well, I would love to learn about you. 
And I'd love yep. to introduce you to our audience of listeners. Um, so can you tell us about you and, and just a little bit of background beyond the bio and how you started and when you started the anti-blackness reader and hug your white friends and really whatever else you'd like to share with us? Your readers and your listeners need to know that I am a Southern hybrid, mm -hmm. uh, a Southern Yankee. So I was born in Austin, Texas. Um, I'm making a point here, but I was born in Austin, Texas, and I grew up in the Bronx, New York. And then as a teenager, moved to uh, uh, Louisiana. And so I always tell people wow. I am the perfect Southern Yankee hybrid. And the Southerner me doesn't know how to tell a short story. <laughs> we like, are going to be good friends. <laughs> the Southerner me is like, we got to go all the way around the mountaintop. And then I'm going to land us. I promise we'll land yeah. somewhere. But it is See, not a quick journey. I get so, lost along the way. So I swear I'm going to land. And then I'm like, huh, this is no, nice. How about I just I can, sit here? <laughs> no, I can do both. I can take us around the river bend and I can take us exactly where the coordinates were. Um, so when you ask me that question, I'm like, oh, how far down the river am I going to go here? Uh, this could take all day. And this is also an interesting question because I think it's such a basic question that people ask when interviewing me and others. But it's always one of those questions that I'm never sure quite how to respond to. Um, I've always studied uh, race in both my undergrad and graduate uh, education. But those conversations uh, have looked different throughout my lifetime. Yeah. When I finished my graduate education, I was committed to having critical conversations as an educator. Um, I've, I teach, I've taught in higher education, state, public, university, um, my whole teaching career that has spanned 15 years. And I always knew it was important to ground my classroom discussions in having intercultural competencies that really circled around how to self-develop in a society where power exists, right? Mm. Um, but I, I think for every generation, well, for sure, every generation of Black people, I don't know if this is true for anybody else because I've never been anything else but Black, right? There are these markers, I call them markers. Um, in the movies, people ask, where were you when JFK died? Do you remember when... Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. For me, it's like, what was I doing when I found out that Trayvon Martin was murdered, right? Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to that in the discussion of the book we're talking about later. But I remember that became a huge marker for me because prior to Trayvon's murder, I was doing the work, but I was doing it. I always tell people very implicitly, it's like moms who put spinach in the brownie mix. Right. Yeah. I was like, hey, we're having these conversations, but they're happening covertly. And I don't you know, my students are talking about certain issues, but I'm not being direct. I'm not using the term racism. I'm not using the term anti-blackness. I'm not using the term whiteness. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then Trayvon was murdered. And that became a huge turning point for me um, because I, I, I asked myself this large question and I it's a question that I often circle back to. And that was, what am I doing to prevent this from occurring again, right? 
And so it kind of, it put, it gave me a huge pause. And I, I, I started to reshift and reprioritize my values. And so like one of the first things that happens is my teaching changes. And it goes from let's put the spinach in the brownie mix to like, oh, no, I'm just serving up spinach now. Mm-hmm. We're going to call the thing a thing. Yeah. Right. Um, and I've always, for the most part, I've always taught at what we call predominantly white institutions. And so I directly become an embodiment of what I think my experience is being traumatized by racism. And I'm bringing that embodiment into my classes. So that happens with Trayvon is murdered. And then fast forward. So then we fast forward into 2016. And I moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is a city where Alton Sterling was murdered. And I moved here shortly after his murder and lived in the community that was dealing with that trauma. And it ignited something completely different me again. So what happened that time, right? So Trayvon's murder made me become explicit in my teaching. And what Alton Sterling's murder did is made me become explicit in my community. And um, I started to spend a lot of time doing community education and volunteering and recognizing that the conversations that I was having on college campuses needed to happen outside of the campus, right? I needed to expand my idea of a classroom and that needed to include my community, right? And so 2016 is kind of where uh, Kina 2.0 emerged. (laughs) And then uh, last fall, um, you know, I've been thinking through this a lot. Atiana Jefferson uh, gets murdered. Mm-hmm. And it's and it and it's not. How do I want to phrase it? I mean, it wasn't like the. It was the first time it occurred to me that I could be a victim of state-sanctioned violence. Like I knew that before, right? Like with Sandra Bland, I knew that it wasn't the first time. But I think what it did is it took away any illusions of safety I had. Like right. that was the last one. Right. Like, I think even with Sandra Bland, there was a part of me that was like, well, she was driving and right. Like the things that we're taught to do to try to defend some of the the violence that occurs. Right. But like, I think with Atiana Jefferson, I was like, oh, there's just no there. There's no safety. There's nothing I can do. And for some people that creates a sense of panic. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was the complete opposite. It was like, oh, I am free, right? Like, if yeah. if if I can experience violence at my home, watching TV, playing a video game with my nephew, driving in a car, like th- that just became such a. It be- I became free, and I was like, and it can all hang out however it hangs out. So. Um, with that freedom, I started to do a lot of researching um, because as an academic, that's where I go to first. I'm like, the answer is in a book. <laughs> What's right. the problem? Answer in a book. <laughs> Which it drives my family and friends crazy, right? Like my family, I'm the oldest of five kids. And so I've had siblings, right, who are like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, 
hey, let me give you a link to an article or here, let me buy you this book and send it to right? your house, you know? And so I just started reading because one of the things I was thinking is we're missing something. We're missing something. There's something we're missing when it comes to this conversation around state sanctioned violence. And not just against Black people too, but that's a part of that, right? Sure. But mm -hmm. I just like, there's something I'm missing on, something I'm missing. And so I started to do a lot of reading um, of both like Afro-pessimism and Afrofuturism, which I don't think most people <laughs> do that work simultaneously. <laughs> but that's yeah. me in the world. I was like, I'm going to do both at the same time, <laughs> right? Especially because the way that those fit in um, in some ways in, in, in antithesis of each other, right? The, the anti-pessimists. Right who are like, They're it. the future for, right, is not the one we expected, whereas Afrofuturism is very much like, here's the creative forces that exist out of boundaries and norms, right? And so yeah. I'm reading this stuff at the same time, and I'm like, oh my gosh, the answer is always there. This conversation is limited. Everyone is, we have been putting so much focus on equality and making people not racist and right. that is only part of the story because racism is focusing on structures and institutions mm. to create equal uh, resources and access and that's great Jen it's amazing but we have to get to that the foundational nature which is black people aren't seen as human right and that's the work. That is the work. That is the work I need to do. And so all of a sudden, I'm realizing the missing piece of this conversation is anti-Blackness. So that's uh, last fall. And so I started the project in my head way before it manifested on social media. Because um, I, I guess I had to reconcile some of those truths for myself first, right, before I could do that for others. And so I started theorizing in my head about what the project would look like. And in the spring of 2020, uh, when the whole world shut down and we all had time to sit at home and, and to think and to ponder, that's when the medium manifested. And I was like, okay, I'll do this via social media. And the Anti-Blackness Project was born. And the project exists to dismantle the lies that Black people aren't human. And I think when people hear that, I mean, I don't know. I imagine when people hear that, they're like, duh, we know Black people are human. But at the same time, there's so much evidence that suggests differently, right? Um, right. And so, uh, you know, I launched the Anti-Blackness Reader in May, early May of 2020. Um, and then by the end of that month, Mr. Floyd had been murdered, you know? Yeah. And that reignited that was a, like a third wave right that occurred and what's interesting is knowing so many people who do similar work you know around anti-blackness and anti-racism is that for a moment in time it felt like the solution was within my my like I could almost reach out and touch it if I created the content and motivated the conversation and 
kept going and going. And so I was like a hamster mm-hmm. on a wheel for about three months. Right. Um, and I think in some ways it still feels like that. Right. And then I have to do the work, like the disciplines that I'm learning to tell myself to rest and to be still and to lean in to, to other things to keep myself well. So I think I answered that question, but I also went around the mountain. Um, but also on the light side, who is Tina? I'm the oldest of five kids. I have a dog named Sammy. <laughs> uh, I'm the type of person who uh, has a zillion coffee cups in my house, but I don't have a coffee maker. But I also have a zillion different types of tea bags. So it works itself out. That's awesome. I did leave something out, though. What'd you leave out? And the only reason I'm bringing this up is because in the bio, you talked about, you know, me being the curator of Hug Your White Friends. So I feel like I should probably kind of give a little backstory to that or no. Yes, yes. I'm actually, I'm very curious. I mean, being white and all. Um, yeah. I'm very curious about Hug Your White Friends. Oh, okay. I think it's such a funny story. Like, I think it's so funny. And I, I think it's so funny because I have a subscriber who came to that project looking for a hug. So she was having a hard day and, you know, she's like having a hard day as a white woman. And I guess like she saw one of the episodes or something on Facebook and she's like, oh, this is great. This is what I need. Like, I need a hug. (laughs) And then she listened to the first episode and she's like, that is the opposite of what a hug is. I was like, yes, gotcha. Ha ha. So uh, while the anti-Blackness reader existed for a very long time in my mind and in my heart before it manifested, Hug Your White Friends is totally, totally created in the moment. Uh, Right after Mr. Floyd was murdered, I experienced and a lot of the Black people I know experienced was like random white people uh, reaching out. Yeah. And being like, I'm so horrified this happened. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, I had people inbox me that I hadn't talked to in 15 years. It wasn't even just like the the understanding, like this bad, horrible thing happened and I'm checking in. That's not right. That's not the issue. But it was more like this bad thing happened. And can you also help me feel like I'm not part of this bad thing? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So can you help me not feel like the thing that this created? Can you help me feel not racist? So I had some really interesting inbox moments. One of them was a guy, like I said, hadn't talked to him in a very long time. It was like, like, hey, uh, I just posted this thing. Can you tell me if it's racist? Um, and I was like, it probably is. because <laughs> Right. If you have to ask. If you have to ask. And you had to pull me out of the dusty corners of like your friendship box, you know? So anyway, so I got super, and then again, at the same time, I'm aware that this is happening to so many other Black people that I know, right? So I got super angry. So it was like the first Facebook Live I had ever done, right? And I get Uh on Facebook, and I'm like, hey, I get it. This horrible thing has happened. You know, you feel really bad about it, which you should, because humans shouldn't see other humans get murdered. But leave black people out of it, right? Like just like leave us the hell alone. Go find a white friend and hug them. <laughs> oh. 
Right. And that's how, and there you go. Uh, there you go. I mean, that was it. It was just like, you can have all these negative emotions, but black people are dealing with their own trauma right now. No one can handhold you through this shit. So like, right. hug yourself or hug a white friend. Get out of my inbox. But the teacher in me, so even that was a one-off, right? It was like, that happened, whatever. I vented, okay, I vented over the internet. No one's going to pay attention to this. And then, uh, I don't know, like a couple hours, like later, within two hours, it had been like viewed like 700 times or something. And so I was like, oh, well, I didn't mean for everyone to see that rant. And so then the teacher in me was like, oh, but I didn't give anybody any instructions on what to do next, right? So like, I was like, right. well, the teacher in me, like, I like to give people solutions, right? Because the video basically ended like, leave me alone. And so um, I recorded the second video that kind of gave some like directions to like white people and non-black people of color, like, hey, here are things you should do to move forward, right? Right. Um, and then after recording that video, I just had a lot of people reach out to me and say, can you please like do more of these? And I appreciated the honesty um, in this conversation. And mm-hmm. so that's how that enterprise got started. And so looking back at it, it really is, um, I think, kind of like a really good yin and yang because the anti-blackness reader project really is centered on black people. Mm-hmm. Obviously lots of people who are not black subscribe to the page and engage. And I love it. I really love it. But the primary audience there is black folks. Right. And so people can take what they want from that, you know, but it's not geared to people who aren't black. And so what hug your white friends is doing is my response to racism and is giving people the strategies and the tools to negotiate that, right? But specifically, what I'm advocating that negotiation looks like is unsubscribing from whiteness, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is not the same as stop being white. Um, but you'll have to have me on the podcast a, another day for that conversation. Um, yeah. But that is definitely what that work looks like on the other side of that. So yeah, I remember seeing your videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's definitely the opposite, right? That's what I'm saying. So that's why I think it's funny. I've even had people say, I don't give cookies to white people and I don't give hugs either. I'm like, I'm not doing that either. Like, Right. You're like, dig a little deeper. Yeah, right? right. Watch the first video. You know exactly what's going on, right? Right. Um, I'm calling for a, a, a culture of accountability, you know? So. Yeah. so it's almost like a get your people in a sense. Like white people yes. go get your people. Yes. Take care of yes. each other and leave me out of it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, the tagline is learn from me, but don't lean on me. I like that. And I think yeah. that is part of the conversation that we miss um, in, in anti-racism work, right? Yeah. Um, there is a balancing act that needs to occur. Um, I don't, you know, yeah, I think it's totally okay um, to be resourced by black people and people of color when we're talking about racism and anti-blackness but i cannot be an emotional lean to for people right to do that right no that's what you have each other for yeah 
Well, and that was the thing when, like, after Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and we had this huge influx of white people who were going, oh, racism is real. Oh, this is happening. This is horrible. All of that. It's like the vast majority of my black friends in activist spaces were like, okay, we're out. See y'all later. And and then it's it's the white people who are endeavoring to be co-conspirators who get to step into that gap and receive all of those white people. And I was like overwhelmed after that happened. I probably spent the first three to four weeks on the phone and in DMS and talking to white people every single day for almost four weeks and i'm just and like you were exhausted weren't you you I were exhausted, exhausted. and uh-huh. and that's where i'm like okay white people who where <laughs> like where the hell are you guys you know i see you and your little you know nasty tweets and your comments and your you know the things that you're saying to people online this is part of this work get yes. over here yes. you know yes. and um and, and engage and and I have to say, I have had to redirect even some of the white friends I know who wanted yeah. to tap out of some of those conversations because they were like, look, I've done this work. I understand X, Y, Z about power and privilege, et cetera, et cetera. And these white people, they sleep and I'm woke. And I'm like, uh-huh. if you don't deal with them, I have to deal with them. No, right. right. go kick rocks, go get your own people. Right. Because that's exhaustive. Like trying to get a Karen oh, right? to even believe that she has a racialized experience. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That alone, right? Like we don't even have to filter in conversations around institutional or systemic violence. Just trying to get some white people to understand they live racialized lives is the highest mountain. Yeah. And I get it, right? Because it's someone who has studied race and things so much of what like the the mythology of colorblindness right Right, and growing up every day of your life as a white person hearing oh race doesn't matter oh we're all the same god made us all the same race doesn't matter whereas black people and people of color don't have that same experience because even if they wanted to believe that to be true they step out their house Mm -hmm. and the and the reality hits them in the face right right So I see this a lot with my students. I'm the first person to tell them. Like, it's really, really interesting um, when I tell my students about, you know, the enfranchisement of white folks, right? When I say, here are the people who came to this country and they weren't white. Irish people weren't white. Jewish people weren't white. Italian people weren't white. Like, I give them the list, you know? And and then I, I talk to them about what happened in the Industrial Revolution in the United States that beckoned and, and called for an increase of white folks, right? And how the white people on the ground were like, well, I'd rather be white than this other thing, right? And also how becoming white and divorcing oneself from an ethnic identity is just another way not to be black. And right. if you've lived in this country as an immigrant for three months and you realize the worst thing you could be in this new homeland is a black person, right? right. Yeah. So telling that to my students, right? I had this student once and he was so hilarious. He's like, so you're telling me 
that my great 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 grandfather who came from, to this country from Italy wasn't a white guy at first I'm like no he was Italian <laughs> right and then all the things that people had to to leave behind to promote themselves in this new country native mm-hmm. tongue you know cultural relics and stuff right and it's really interesting living in Louisiana because there's a whole a history of French um, Cajuns who mm-hmm. basically had to stop speaking French, yep. right? Like completely deaded it and didn't let their kids speak French because they were like, we can't be French Cajun anymore. We just have to be white people if we want to survive poverty, right? right? So it's really interesting. And so kind of like not to go too far down that path. So like, yeah, just helping white people realize, no, you have a racialized experience and having white skin means something, that alone is exhausting. Oh, not there- account for all the other stuff. Right. Oh, I mean, it's amazing. Like, I still run into people who are pissed when I refer to them or myself as a white person. They're like, you're racist. That's racist. I'm like, oh, (laughs) I see where we're at here. Yeah, you're not. Right. Oh, I mean, I've had I've had friends in my home, you know, and I actually was a doula at one point in my life. And I had a couple of friends in my home uh, at different times to discuss this concept with them and to really sit and talk about. And each conversation lasted approximately five hours. And my husband was with me. And the first time when our friends left, he looked at me and he's like, what the hell was that? I'm like, that was whiteness. That was white privilege on display, right? Like, That's this wrestling. I mean, one-on-one, five hours, you know, like this stuff takes serious labor and time. Yeah. And I, you know, I tell, it's so funny um, because, you know, depending on what corner of the internet people have access to me, uh, I've been told that I'm the racist, right? And so people are always surprised when they find out that there are white people actually know and hang out with and love, right? But you can't go around saying, I've got a white friend, right? Because <laughs> that's <laughs> like, I promise you, I've got a white friend. I've got lots of white friends. Like, you can't, can't go around doing that. Like, I can't get um, away from them. <laughs> yeah. There are white people who actually love me and I hang out, right? Can't go around saying that. But, you know, one of the things that I've told white parents in my life that I'm intimate with and I do like with, mm-hmm. I always say, don't let me be the first person to tell your kids that they're white. Because when we think about the most alarming or uncomfortable knowledge that we get in the world, where do we want to hear that from? We want to hear that from people we love and trust, right? Like, this, there's a reason why people say the sex talk should happen at home first. Right. You hear what I'm saying? Yeah. But here you have generations of white people who don't find out what that white means something until they like get it from me. Right. They, they take one of my classes and they're like, Oh, right. Like, Oh, I didn't know. And so that's one of the things I always tell my friends, like make sure your kids know what that means so that they grow up and they're not shocked to find out later that they do have racialized experiences. That's part of having white privilege is not to ever have to think about being white until it's kind of thrust in your face, which is the opposite of the experience that people of color and Black people have in this country. 
And I think Patrice does such a good job in this book of in really kind of like, I know it sounds weird to say, but in very sweet and gentle ways, showing us how her Blackness has shaped every interaction she's ever had, right? Every relationship, every experience with every social system. But she does it in a way, like I said, the only way I can think about it is it's sweet and gentle. It's harsh truth, right? Like that's definitely not what I'm saying. But there's no, it's, it's, it's like, um, like, like, you know, like a baby is like, just sits, I mean, not when it's fussy, but a baby that's sleeping and it's, it's very real and, and you feel the baby, right? But it's just so still and so there, you know, Mm -hmm. and her writing is like that. It's just, it's so, it's just so easy. And maybe, maybe because I am a black woman, right? But it's like just so easy to feel what she feels and to to see and to uh, frame her experience and to see it. You don't feel divorced from it at all. There's a yeah. gentleness about the writing that I just really appreciated. You know? Yeah. Well, so that is a great segue into talking <laughs> about the book, which is really the main reason that we were getting together today is to discuss the book when they call you a terrorist and it's a black yes. lives matter memoir by patrice colors and asia who is her co-writer tina mentioned it and said she wanted to choose this book for our book of the quarter and then we ran a um what what did we do i forget what those things are called <laughs> i don't know i just know that i won it yay right. Right, we it was did the first this contest I ever won oh. in my whole freaking life. And I'm telling you something, you won it fair and square. But I will say, and I told you this privately, when you put your name in, I'm like, I really hope she wins. And then yeah. you did. And so it was like Whoa. that's so manifestation, cool. manifestation. Right. I geeked out about it too, right? Like I geeked out about it. like my mom, like I got on Facebook, I guess, yeah, because my mom's not on anything else. But I got on Facebook. I was like, I won. I won. And then people were like, girl, what did you win? I'm like, I won a book. And then they're like, that's it? <laughs> but it's a book. And you have already set up how you love books, right? Exactly. It was on my list. No, it was yeah. awesome. So, And then here we are. We get to do a podcast about it. So I'm really excited. This book is, mm-hmm. like you were saying, beautifully written. I actually got to listen to it. So I got to listen to Patrice and the emotion. I don't know. You know, you you had told me that you would listen to the book. Mm-hmm. And after reading, I don't even know if I could handle it. Like, I could not. Like, all I can think is five minutes in, I'd be bawling. <laughs> just like, oh, my God. Right? Like, I just, yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't. There was just a lot of stopping and just being and sitting and taking a deep breath and yeah just a- allowing myself to feel what I was feeling I, I'm I'm curious I'm sure I wonder if this exists on the interwebs right mm-hmm. because you know that had to be a choice that that she made right like did you know yeah. so many people have what like they're literally I don't know what you call them. I don't think they're called voice actors, but there are people 
who get paid to just like narrate other people's books. Right. And so I wonder if Patrice like contacted the publisher and was like, no, I want to do my own voicing. Or, you know, it's interesting because there's no way that she recorded it and didn't relive some of that that stuff, right? Like there's just, you know, so in the retelling and the reliving, I just wonder if it was cathartic for her. I don't know. I, I would love to even know about that experience. Like, how does she feel like reflecting, but like reflecting, like reflecting out loud? Yeah, I was wondering so. that as I was listening to it, because there were just periods of her story. You know, when she talks yeah. about her father and just different experiences where oh. I just was thinking like I could not I don't think I could pull it together enough to actually read this. Well, that's what I'm saying, you know, right. So yeah. that's what- and see, I don't think I could pull it together enough to actually listen to it, mm-hmm. right? So we're we're two opposite sides of the coin. Yeah. And like the the stuff with her dad, that's what I'm saying, like, wow. Yeah. Just so earnest and so powerful. Um she talks about first of all, I was just thinking, like, do we talk about this like spoiler alert? Like, you know, are we like are we assuming that, I don't know, because I don't want to ruin the book for your listeners. I don't think, Do we... I, I mean, my gut is, I don't think you can ruin the book for the listeners. I think okay. that the listeners okay. need to get this book and read it if they haven't, because it is yeah. an important thing to bear witness to. This memoir is yeah. beautifully written. It's incredibly powerful for me reading it. I And I can talk about a little bit later. Um, it just, it really expanded and opened and gave me a much broader, much more holistic picture of her and of the movement. So I will say that anybody listening, like, yeah, we may have some spoiler things, but, but I don't really think in the end it is, it's nothing that would prevent you from going and getting the book and reading it and, and giving it to other people to read. For sure. So, yeah. Go for it. What do you, so what did you think of the book and where do you want to start? So that, the, the, the relationship with her dad, I think like, you know, you know, I'm such a avid book reader. And so there are things that I read and, um, and return to. And I think that no matter, you know, how often I read this book in the future, I think every time I finish reading it, what I'll probably return to is the the story of her of, of her loving her dad, right? And I think part of that is also because of my own struggles with my dad. Mm-hmm. And I felt like there were some overlaps in Patrice's and I experiences of being in being fathered, right, by black men. Yeah. You know, and watching someone you love go through the violence of of anti-blackness and so like her processing that really made me think about my own processing of my father you know Mm -hmm. I think that's probably why that really resonated with me um and it's also really interesting there are so many things so that's what I'm saying I read I've read this book and have so many notes and stuff but what's interesting is and we have a shared a friend Hannah Nicole Jones yeah Hannah and I had this conversation, which is so funny because sometimes 
you know, it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes somebody says something out loud and you're like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Oh my gosh, right? totally. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, Hannah and I were talking and Hannah was talking about her experience. Shout out to Hannah if you listen to this, Hannah. Yeah. Um, but uh, we were talking and Hannah was talking about her experience in the education system in California and feeling at times... Um, as a kid, there were things that she felt responsible for. And then when she got older and started to learn how education worked, because she, she was working within education, that she was like, oh, this wasn't about me. This was about this larger system, right? Right. Failing, yeah. right? And that's, and you know, and when Hannah said that, it made me start thinking, how many other children, Black, Brown, poor, are situated in different institutions, but largely educational institutions and thinking, oh, I'm the problem, not this larger arena that I'm in. And so I think Patrice does such a good job of like really expanding on that idea of we live in this country of the ethics of personal responsibility, right? Like the ethics and the, and the politics even this week, uh, you know, I don't want to get too into politics, but President Barack Obama gave a speech and, you know, he was saying, like, people want a fair shot, which is good, right? Like, that that's a value, right? We believe in that. He's like, so that they can make good choices, you know, and better their lives. And I was like, but tell the rest of that. Like, right? Like, I was like, Oh, President Obama, just tell the rest of that. Because talk about the systems that make making good choices, quote unquote, damn near impossible, right? right? Talk about that. Because alongside of this ethic of personal responsibility and choice making, where people feel like if I had only chose X, Y, Z, I wouldn't be living in this neighborhood. If I had only done X, Y, Z, I would have a better job. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh my gosh, that is the biggest myth. Yeah. Right. There are lots of myths, but that one, the the mythology of personal choice, it is dangerous. Oh yeah. It is so dangerous. Right. Yeah. I think about so many people who vote against their best interests, right? Because they believe that, oh, I'm just one lucky shot away at being like Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. and I'm like uh-uh there's a lot of things keeping you from being Jeff Bezos yeah it's like and yet you're not and you don't know anybody else who is but right and nobody else in your neighborhood you're right like right? you get what I'm saying like oh yeah you know my my uh my mom lives in a working class neighborhood but it's predominantly black and brown people and then like maybe two blocks around my mom is like this uh like trailer park filled with white people right you know mm -hmm. and uh I think to myself a lot right like how many of those people recognize that my mom and them are on the same side right. of so many struggles in this country oh. wow and so I th that if there's nothing else from this book it's like the ways that she talks about how that the, the illusion of personal responsibility is violent is just so good because it is you know what i'm saying and the myth of meritocracy 
right? That if you work hard enough, you too could be Donald Trump. You too could be a reality TV president. Like, yeah. just so violent. It's so violent because you've got this generation of working class whites who can't even look at systems because they're just thinking, oh, this is all about my crummy choices, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's just so much more. So, so much more. Jen, it is not coincidence that during the COVID pandemic, Jeff Bezos and the Walmart CEO and who all those other people are came out much richer. Right? <laughs> How? Where'd they do that at? Uh-huh. Right? Like, oh. that's a real thing. And that doesn't happen accidentally. And that's not just because these people make better choices than the rest of us. No, absolutely. And I mean, and, and that's the thing, like reading the book, for me, as a white woman who's been in this process of deconstructing and, and learning yeah. and unlearning and all of this for probably eight solid years now, when I read yeah. this, it still just peels away at the layers. So it's like I've identified and I've understood this myth of meritocracy and I endeavor yeah. to, you know, like continue on that path or whatever. But I read this story and I read other stories and I hear other stories and I'm and I realize that it's still so embedded in me because there's still this amount of surprise. There's still an amount of aha for me when I hear this and I read this and I'm like. This really is a myth, right? Like and and it's that's where I think it's so important. Yeah, people agree because that has been hammered into us. For, I mean, for me, for 43 years. Yes. Yep. Yep. If you just work hard enough. And I do want to say this, because, I mean, just in case there's that one, you know, one listener, I do think choices matter, right? Like, I'm not sitting here and saying that they don't. But what I'm saying is, whenever we only tell one part of a story, it's dangerous. Right. Like, we're living the manifestation of that as we speak, right? Like, the yeah. founding fathers, the like, you know, we the people, like, yeah, okay, we tell this story, but we don't talk about like, you know, the the millions of indigenous people who are murdered, slaughtered, dislocated. Right. Mm-hmm. So telling only one part of something is dangerous. And so, yes, personal responsibility matters in addition to all that other stuff that matters too. Um, and I don't want us to get too much into even like the class of this, but that's what I'm saying. This book is so great because it really is an intersectional analysis because, like I said, I think it creates all these other conversations. And so what does what keeps people from having class solidarity? Right. Mm-hmm. It's things like the ethics of personal responsibility, the myth of meritocracy. You know, mm-hmm. I also think something else. Like, there's so many powerful notes I have here, but I think one of the things I kept referring to is what, so I'm going to, I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to out myself a little. Um, at one point in time, I did not believe in reparations for the descendants of slaves, which is shocking mm-hmm. as hell, considering who I am as a person now, right? Like, I like everything about me is pro black. Like, what is Keena love? Like, what what is Keena love in life? Blackness, right? Like, it's like right. high on the list. Um, but I didn't, right? And at that time, it was because I was subscribing to whiteness, and I thought that if I just worked hard enough, I could be supreme. You know, all those things. 
and I came around on the the reparations conversation. Um, but like it's embarrassing, right, to say it now. But it wasn't because of the the moral of the issue; it was the economics of it. Right. When I started to find out, and I'm going to tie this back to the book, I promise. But when I started to find out um, about like the sweat equity, like so, when I found out that like the sweat equity alone in the White House was millions of dollars, right? And that was free labor by enslaved people. So when I started to find out the hard numbers, I was like, oh, heck yeah, reparations, right? And this book, reading this book gave me a whole nother reason. So I create, I have a list yeah. in my head called reasons why someone should run me a check, right? <laughs> so like any point in time, you could call me, email me like, you know, why reparations? Let me tell you, here's the list. And reading this book gave me a whole nother item to add on that list. Yeah. And it is, what is the cumulative effect of hatred, racism, and indignity? And the cu- cumulative effect hasn't just been mass incarceration. It's right. the fact that Black people's relationships are marked by harm and absence, mm. right? Which is the direct quote from the book. And I'm like, damn. Reason number 75, why someone needs to write me a check. Right. Right? Like that alone, the, the, the idea that Black relationships throughout the global West are marked by harm and absence. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, mm-hmm. I remember um, a couple years back, I don't know what company did it. And now I'm thinking they did it for a slimy reason. But there was a, was it Dove? Like, whatever company it was, it didn't even make sense. And I was just like, I don't trust this. Mm-hmm. But they, it was a commercial about the talk that Black parents have with their kids who start driving. Maybe it was AT&T, right? I don't, did you see this commercial? Because it was like, I vaguely the Black recall. parent was in the window and she's like, yeah. get home safe or whatever. Right. And, but I remember uh, hearing like white people talk about that. Like, I had no idea. You know, and that's an innocent enough statement to make, right? But impact is hell of important. And like, what does it mean that during this time where parents have anxiety, any parent would have anxiety about teaching their kids like how to drive and how to drive safe, right? Like that's just something that I would imagine all parents have anxiety with. But like Black parents have added anxiety and that impacts the whole experience for the parents and the kids, right? Mm-hmm. And like that weight, that's the thing that she's talking about, right? Like all of this harm that gets infused in our relationships um, beyond just the harm that humans do to each other interpersonally anyway, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's like, take anything that's already difficult, right? And then add 16 more layers of difficulty to it, you know? Yeah. And when she was sharing her brother's story, you know, and just that was a story that has stretched on and gone on. Like that was devastating to listen to that story. Well, even her, so that's what I'm saying, when she's doing the audio of that court scene, I couldn't imagine. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if she had to, like, do several takes, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. 
And and so even so institutions, if you're someone who doesn't understand how institutional justice injustices work, read this book. Mm-hmm. Just read the book, right? When she talks about her transition from elementary to junior high to middle to high school and the lack of resources, I mean, you know, again, in such a really gentle but still vivid way, mm-hmm. she talks about like the, the support that existed in one space that didn't just you know when she talks about going to I think it was her majority white junior high school and that she sees all these things that they have access to that she didn't have in her elementary and she's like wow it's such a glaring difference yeah you know and then I love the fact that she also brings into fact that here are kids who just had bag of weed right like they were just oh just drug dealing from their basement and who had never had any experiences with police officers, right? Right. Um, and there's this quote that I wrote, and it's like one of those things where I'm like, oh, I want to tattoo this on my heart. She says, I am beginning to see how more than a single truth can live at the same time and in the same person, right? And she said that about her dad and her dad's journey in recovery. But I thought about that part of the struggle we have um, doing anti-racism work and anti-blackness work is that there's a single truth that we're always dismantling and telling does not exist. Mm-hmm. Or if it does exist, it exists in tandem with all these other truths, right? And people really struggle with that, right? Because mm-hmm. again, the if you grow up end. with this one belief, right? And then someone's come along and said, but this thing is true too. It, it causes a lot of cognitive dissonance for folks, yep. right? And I think that's what made uh, Mr. Floyd's death an interesting, like, nucleus, right? Mm-hmm. Because we've grown up in the United States hearing that this is the land of the free, home of the brave, that this is the land of, of, of justice. Like, all of... and. And then let's not even talk about it. We've got the best everything. We've got the best health care. Right. 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 We've got the best uh, legal system and all these things. And it's like at one period of time, there's this force field where all of those truths are becoming unmasked at the same time. Yes. Right. Yes. We can't have the best health care system because look at our death rates of COVID. We can't have the best justice, justice system because this man just got murdered crying out for his mom. Right. So I feel like those truths that people wanted to believe in, like, started to, like, get unmasked, you know? Yeah. And so I just think it's powerful that by showing us her truth, her truth, her multiple truths, that that can land people in a place. I think it's a good thing, right? But a lot of people are scared about dealing with that cognitive dissonance i think her book is does a good job of in a very real guttural way help people see multiple things can exist at one time right you know yeah i think that's a really beautiful way to put it yeah because the story is just it's a powerful beautiful story of her life and in that there are so many layers that get peeled away so many realizations that kind of come to the surface yeah. and um and not just for black people too i really want to make that clear right that's what i'm saying like yeah. anyone can approach this um and just there's so many nuggets 
because like I said, even like some of the questions that she's inherently asking, she talks about access to healthcare that's centered on patients, not money. Why doesn't that exist? Right. And that is something that goes beyond racial or ethnic identity. I mean, we're living it. We're living in a land that in what, two weeks time, two, three weeks time, a decision is going to be made if 20 million people no longer have access to health care. It's bananas. Yeah. And so I just think there's multiple places where people can see themselves in, in her narrative. Oh, yeah. You know, she talks about giving birth and how scary it is to negotiate those systems, right? And so it's just like, there's just so many, there's multiple points of entry. Mm-hmm. that's how I would say that there's multiple points of entry into this right like you don't have to be a black woman to feel connected you could be queer you could be a mother you could be someone who is a student you could be someone who loves someone with mental challenges you could be someone who loves someone in recovery like there's just so many points of entry here right that I think can resonate with so many much of our lives because uh, systemic violence touches us all. Yeah. Well, and so much of the story resonated with me, you know, as a mother of children with special needs, somebody who's had to navigate the healthcare system for my own uh, cancer long ago, you know, advocating, doing patient advocacy for my children, so many different avenues where I just really felt like, I could connect and relate on some level to some of the things that she was writing about. Um, I would say for me, like, do you have, do you have a favorite or a particular part of the story or the book that really stood out to you? Um, So the relationship with her dad definitely is one of the things that I think, like I said, even if I read this book, you know, five years from now, whatever, I think that will definitely be something that I constantly like reflect on. Yeah. I, I, so I don't, I mean, that's the one thing that really kind of like probably resonates with me the most. I also think her commitment to community, the way she talks about creating community, yes. creating family. Yeah. Right. I think that's really powerful. And that's something that a lot of people who have to, who do and like, from two places, from people who have done or doing the work to do anti-racism, anti-Blackness work, I do feel like there is this need to create like self-identified community for some people. Yeah. And I'm going to be more specific for white people, for white people I know who've decided, okay, you know what? I'm tapping out. Like, this is a hot mess and I'm going to see these things for what they are. And I I hear stories about there's a sense of isolation afterwards. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because now it doesn't feel safe to have the same conversations with your parents or relationships change with your siblings, right? And so I think she can she gives some inspiration about what does it mean to create family and what does it mean to create community and to rely on them. So I think that's the second huge tenet I get from is that she shows you that sometimes that's what you need in life right? To create a family of your own. Yeah. To get resourced by and to give you 
to give you love and to restore you, you know? So I think that's a powerful lesson I saw there. Um, I guess my third takeaway from this book is it just seemed like so early in life, she just had such a good understanding of who she was and what she wanted. And I just want that for all people, right? Like right. to have that, that, that clear lens, like no matter what that scary stuff she was going through, she just really seemed to have such, such an honest understanding of what she valued and what she wanted to see manifested, you know? Right. And so in that regard, it kind of is a good reminder for us that, I mean, I don't want to say at the end of the day, right? But I right. always I always laugh and say the hardest person to be honest with you is just yourself. And if you can learn how to develop an honest relationship with yourself, you can have an honest relationship with anybody else, right? Yeah. And so I think she really models that and shows that that kind of authenticity, that kind of that value of self mm-hmm. will manifest things in life, right? Like even when things are hard or even when things are challenging, if you are honest with yourself and if you know what your values are, then the universe will respond. Mm-hmm. You know, the universe will respond to that. So I think those are the major takeaways. I mean, surely you don't want me to go through the book and just start giving you all the places that are highlighted in green. Right. <laughs> yeah. The I mean, the thing, the the word or the phrase that comes to mind for me is beloved community. And just the mm-hmm. picture, like you were saying, that she presented of community and, and just that um, the way that it, like she tells the story of her brother. And for those of you who haven't read the book, go get the book and read it. and You'll know what we're talking about. But as she's talking about just working with her brother and dealing with her brother and being in this crisis situation, you see so clearly how doing it without the context of community led to literally his incarceration, right? Literally led to, instead of him getting the medical help that he needed, him being Mm -hmm. thrust into a system where his body and his mind and his soul was shattered. And then to see this picture of the community coming together and working with him and having the space to take him and get him the help that he needed and how there was such a vastly different outcome in that. It was such a beautiful, profound moment to just bear witness to as a listener of that story. It's a beautiful, truth-telling, hard book. And I think it's important to bear witness to that story And I also think that there is that hopefulness in what can be, because like you said, there's this ethic that she has and there's this ethic that they have in their community. And there's this beauty and this peace and this camaraderie that is in that safe space that they've created. And that really impacted me. That that's uplifting. That's what I was saying. I think while there's some definitely hard truth present, I think that is the tenet that runs across the book. That community and belief in self, yeah, can it can create and manifest change. Um, 
I can't believe I left this part out though, Jen, which is like, also it makes me want to redefine the concept of terrorism, right? Yeah. Because I, 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 I read the last page of the book and I think to myself, do we read, I, I think I'm a terrorist, right? Like, like, yeah. like, especially if a terrorist, because if you, and again, I don't want us to get into history. I know we're wrapping up here, but anyone who's not upholding the white colonial settler state that was established by those 55 men who gathered in Philadelphia in 1776 mm-hmm. or whatever. Yep. Don't, I mean, I start singing Hamilton in a second. Don't. <laughs> 1776. <laughs> Because her brother is called a terrorist and she's called a terrorist. And even in the forward, Angela Davis talks about her own, right? Like her own framing by the FBI and the CIA as a terrorist. Yeah. And man, oh man, like this idea that anyone who questions the state and anyone who says this doesn't have to be like this, anyone who says this is violent, right? This is a violent act can get that label, you know? that also is something that stuck out to me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's who else would be defined in that regard. Right. I I mean, well, and and if you look at our current political situation and the rhetoric coming out of the white house Mm -hmm. and, and just all of the things that are going on in our country today, um, particularly since George Floyd, you know, like it stands out to me even more in that, you know, because the president definitely uses that language. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I have spent a lot of time being in white spaces. I've spent so much of my time arguing about black lives matter and arguing with people who want to come in and say, well, you're a Marxist, you're a socialist, you're this, you're that they're terrorists. And, um, and this just gave me even more of a commitment to continue speaking truth in those spaces and to do it unapologetically and to stand firm in that. And, and also just how, how absurd it is to me that, right. Like this word terrorist, who do we reserve this for? That's what I'm saying. It, uh, I mean, the, the book really helps you understand that anyone who is not committed to maintaining multiple violent systems, not just racism, at any at any given point in time, can get framed like right. that, right? I mean, that definitely was something else that stuck out to me immensely is um, re reimagining that phrase. I guess my last thought would be, you know, she talks about she spends a lot of time talking about what are the impacts of police being the only intervention. Right. And I'm just like, goodness gracious, goodness gracious. That's a Um, good one. Yeah. Because, yeah, because I I think it's like, um, that's not what they were created for. Right. And uh, we're not going to do the history of policing in this session either. But it's just it's just ironic that in the world of the land, the land of the free and the home of the brave and all these things that we attach to the American experiment that we haven't figured out that we haven't made space for all the different type of interventions that can exist for people. And that this idea of law and rhetoric is being the sole intervention for black and brown and poor people. Come on, we could do better. 
and we should do better. So that's something I, I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about, yeah. you know. It, it brought me to this moment I had with my mom a couple summers ago. She had some neighbors move into the uh, neighborhood. And again, my mom is a Southern woman and she knows all her neighbors. And some of her family are her neighbors, you know, like two houses down from my mom is one of my sisters, one of her sisters around the corner is a, her twin oh, wow. sister, you know. So my mom is very communal. And a couple of years ago, these new people moved into the neighborhood across the street from her. And for whatever reason, they were not displaying suitable behavior for my mom, whatever that means, okay? And I guess they were listening to music too loud. Who even knows? And my mom's like, that's it. I'm going to call the cops, right? And I was like, what? Like, my head just turned full circle. Like, those people are black. (laughs) So I was like, what are you talking about? Right? So long story short, I'm like, convince my mom not to call the cops. And so a couple months after that, and I think the people eventually moved out, right? Like, I don't even think Mm -hmm. they were there long. But I talked to my mom about that. And I was like, why were you going to call the cops on those people? And my mom was like, well, that's the only thing I've always heard you can do. Yeah. And that's what we need to address, right? Like, you get what I'm saying? Like, my Black Southern mama, like, her first go-to is call the cops, too, because, again, that's how they've been framed. You get what I'm saying? And I just know we could do better. We can expand that. Mm -hmm. We can expand that. Like, when people talk about defund the police, like, maybe that wasn't the best rhetorical framework, because really what we're asking for is to expand the access and the types of interventions people right. can have in this country. That's what we're really yeah. asking for. My mom needed to know that there are other things she could have done besides call the cops because her neighbors were playing mm-hmm. too loud music. But that would require giving people the tools and the education Right. And that, you know, to know what are the other options that exist. So anyway. Yeah, I love that. It's like the book is this invitation into expanding the imagination on that, you know, and she highlights that so well, like the story I was telling earlier. Yeah. You know, it's like, what could this really look like? What could our country really be like? And, And how can we think outside of the system? Well, Hina. Where can people follow you and support your work? Well, I am on Algor's internet. Uh, so you can follow the Anti-Blackness Reader on Instagram, Twitter. We have a YouTube channel. So that exists. And also Hug Your White Friends. That's also on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know 